Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Any Stupid Questions. to Any Stupid Questions, the political podcast which frees comedians and audience members from the shame of ignorance in order to ask experts some really basic questions. Why do we need the army? Is Wales a country? How does Parliament work again? Because I thought I knew, but apparently not. Those sorts of questions. I'm your host, Danielle Ward, and tonight we'll be trying to get to grips with the NHS by quizzing the editor of Health Policy Insight and comment editor of Health Services Journal, Andy Cowper. And asking the stupid questions with me tonight are my comedian guests, Carrie Quinlan and Darren Harriet. So, Carrie and Darren, do you use the NHS at all? Um, I use it for, like, well, the basic stuff, like, you know, dentists, I do it, but I still you pay. You have got lovely teeth, yeah. it's got to be said. But I still have to pay, which annoys me a bit. Well, there, there's a question. Because there is, there is that always that sort of stereotype, NHS should be free, and I'm always paying. Also, why are um, dentist practices in, like, houses? <laughs> like, when did that start? Remember, it's like a proper building. I'm sick of going into someone's, like, yard. <laughs> <laughs> It's just weird. It's just it's endless front rooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is very strange now. I don't like going to the dentist, and this links to this because my friend lives in America. I don't like going to the dentist because I, I'm worried that they're making up what I need because I don't know whether I need all of these things that they do. And my friend who lives in LA, he doesn't like going to the doctor because they start upselling. So they'll go, hmm, <laughs> your knee's all right, but have you considered a hip replacement? And that's the slope it's, that we're on. It's because you can't see in the dentist. All you see is the seat. If there's like a mirror, maybe yeah. we're thinking of ideas, spitballing. Maybe they should put like a giant mirror just so you can see exactly what's going on. Because you have no idea. You're just going, uh-huh, how, uh-huh, how spit, How wide uh-huh. can you open your mouth? Yeah. What, that you can see it in a... Yeah. Anyway, Andy, why are you so interested in the NHS? That's a good question. Well, at university I was studying animal husbandry until they caught me at it one day. Um, <laughs> whereupon I switched to being interested in medicine. Primarily I wanted to specialise in diseases of the rich. Yeah. Um, all of which is a complete lie, uh, which I stole from a Tom Lehrer record. The rather more boring truth is that I had a magnificent failed career as an actor, which I then followed up with a magnificent failed career as a musician, and then I got to my oh, late 20s uh, <laughs> yeah. and suddenly realised I didn't have any means of actually regularly earning money, and I thought I could write, and I just applied for loads of jobs in publishing, real kind of bottom-of-the-rung jobs and eventually somebody offered me a full-time job it was in a small public health charity and then a series of people were just obviously desperate to fill jobs at various times when I was applying for jobs and that's kind of it I, you know, I've been doing it for the last uh, 18 years and I know that you get less than that for manslaughter these days but is it a fulfilling job yeah it's a really interesting job if you're interested in politics and I am quite interested in politics and also the NHS spends a very substantial amount of the national wealth, the money we all pay in taxes, uh, so that you can um, 
the dentist thing, by the way, if you put a big mirror on the ceiling, you just see the back of your dentist's head. That's better than nothing. <laughs> but it wouldn't leave you a lot more informed about whether... I mean, if you could see their like thoughts, this. if you could read their thoughts in the back of their head, they're kind of going... Okay, what if you put a mirror on the front of your dentist's head? Now, or, on the now end we're of my getting shoe? somewhere. Because I'm up with my feet like that, if there's like a mirror on the end of my shoe, and then see... I don't think the angles would work on that. No, but if I said to them, can you press that button that lifts the leg up a bit, so I'm, I'll be in a bit of a weird there position. You go. But, see, spitballing. Then it'd be worth, then it'd be worth the money. Exactly, yeah. 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 Okay. I had orthodontic treatment a few years ago, and they had a telly on the ceiling. That's more like That was it. amazing. Yeah. What was the telly showing? Can't remember. I, I mean, the sound was off, which was unfortunate, but... You know what I remember? When I had my wisdom teeth taken out, I remember it was the South Korean um, World Cup was on. One oh. of the few details that I remember, and I remember the sensation of being sedated was really lovely. And so um, I'm seven months pregnant at the moment, and the thing that I'm really keen on is the diamorphine, because like, when else can you have heroin for free? <laughs> I am really looking forward to the drugs. Anyway, I have a question for Andy. This is my first question. Why are so many GPs' practices being taken over by private companies, and is this something we should be worried about? So, effectively, that is private companies being taken over by other private companies. Okay, so the GP is always operating. Most, like so uh, there are two different types of contracts uh, for, for employing GPs. GMS, General Medical Services contracts, that is the contract with a GP or a group of GPs who work together as a private business mm -hmm. and they can make profit which they take out of the business and they pay their staff etc etc but interestingly they're still eligible for the NHS pension okay quite an interesting thing yeah this is something which has been in the NHS since 1948 this was one of the things Nye Bevan who was the Labour health minister who was very instrumental in the legislation that set up the NHS, he said that GPs could have this arrangement of being effectively private businessmen under contract to the NHS and the consultants could have their private practice as well as their NHS salaried work. And the line he used to do the deal with the BMA, who were a very tough trade negotiating trades union back in those days, said, I have stuffed their mouths with gold. So, in all honesty, getting massively worked up about bigger private organisations taking over smaller private organisations in the NHS, um, my sense is if they're still delivering care to the whole population free at the point of use, paid for through taxation... Um, I'm, I can see some reasons why you would worry about big over small, but not majorly compelling ones, I think. You know the NHS TripAdvisor thing? We've all been there, right? You know the NHS has got, like, you could give a star rating to things. And my GP's was, it had a really low star, and it had a terrible rating. And it was taken over by a private company. We all got a letter saying it's being taken over. And I thought, this is really, I'm really anti this. I don't want some shareholder getting money every time I get a urinary tract infection. Um, and so I, I went to another GP and found out it had done the same thing. And I thought I should have a real moral problem with this, but this sounds like this... It depends whether you have a, a sort of moral anger problem when it was a small private organisation that, you know, is, yeah. is, it, is there any difference between small private organisation and big private organisation? Now, there might be. Yeah. So you might get a more personal patient-centred service in a small organisation, but then a bigger organisation might have better software, might be, have more, you know, might do more diagnostic tests without you having to go to hospital every time you need a analysis for this or that. So how does this work financially if... If there's now a bigger company looking after it, how yeah. is there more... How are they paid? Yeah, yeah. Right. So the 
way in which GPs are usually paid, it's about the number of patients they have. Okay. So it's what's called a capitation payment. So you get a payment. Not decapitation payment. Different decapitation. thing. So the number of people on your books basically determines how much you're going to earn. It also determines how many practice nurses, other GPs, etc., etc., you need in, in your practice to be able to provide an effective service to all of those people. Yeah. Where does profit come in? Yeah. How do, they, how do GP practices make profits? Because that how, sounds weird. How does anyone anywhere make profits? It's just the difference between what they spend on providing the healthcare and right. what they earn through capitation. Through, okay. Yeah. So one of the ways in which a GP So you looked at me like that was a stupid question and we decided there were no I, stupid I'm, questions. Yeah. I'm with you as well. I just said, I, it just, it just sounds, it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a mental leap, isn't it? I thought it? he was going to say something like drug dealing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. no, that is, well, compl- that is completely that, that is that is completely true in the case of some GP yeah. practices. They're, they're what's called prescribing practices. So it doesn't mean they, they write prescriptions because pretty much all GP practices write prescriptions, but they're dispensing practices as well. So they've got a little chemist shop as part of their GP practice. And they, this usually happens in areas where there isn't a boots anywhere nearby, there isn't a yeah. supermarket very nearby, etc., etc. It, it, you know, so not that widespread. But what that does enable those GPs to do that, this is very often kind of very entrepreneurial, quite money-hungry GPs, of whom there are some, and very frequently these will be GPs who work on their own. So they won't have any practice nurse, they won't work with any other GPs, it's just it's what's called a single-handed practice. And so you might have, and the audience might have seen these as well, that there are sometimes you read these mad stories about what doctors are earning from the NHS in tabloid newspapers. It's kind of like, there's a GP earning £293,000 a year. There are one or two GPs who are earning those kind of sums, but they're all running single-handed dispensing practices. They're open all the hours God sends. So they are probably providing a service that their population, wherever they are, more likely to be out of the way places, very unlikely to be in the middle of a big town or city, they're providing something that those people kind of actually need. I've got a picture in my head now of Walter White <laughs> as I've, my GP. I've got a picture in my head of, you know, when you go to the cinema and they don't make any money on the films, but they make it all on the nachos. It's all of the yeah, pop- yeah. <laughs> so, But is there not a dodgy incentive, therefore? Uh, yes, there is a big dodgy incentive, which, you know, how prevalent it is, I don't necessarily think we have the data to give us a very clear picture, but... If you imagine yourself to be running a GP practice business and you could ex- okay. you could take a bigger profit from your practice if you don't employ an extra GP and a half as part of your thing, but then, of course, you'll start to get quite long waits for an appointment or if you don't employ an extra practice nurse or you don't have a phlebotomist. So, yeah, there is a, there is a perverse incentive in the GMS GP, you know, the one where the private business model there is a perverse incentive in there how widespread people doing that is you know it's hard to prove to be honest with you can i um, ask as a follow-up then because this has been you probably you might have seen this uh, as a meme or you might have read it in an actual newspaper so are virgin healthcare actually suing the nhs for losing a contract they are suing. They're suing quite a lot of the NHS for losing a contract. I was quite taken aback by this one. I had to look all the details up. And they were doing children's services in Surrey, and they had won that contract. Okay. And, you know, I don't think there was particular fuss. The Virgin have won quite a few contracts, and basically the, the contract only lasts for a period of time. I think it's three or four years, typically. 
contract expired, went up for renewal, and there was in-house NHS organisations in Surrey and a social enterprise, so like a charity, third sector organisation. And what Virgin said was they were, quotes, concerned that there were serious flaws in the procurement process. And they said, never have we been so concerned with the whole process that we've needed to make a challenge of this nature. And one of the things that's quite startling is how many people they're actually suing. So they're suing NHS England, which is the kind of management quango that runs the plumbing of the money throughout the NHS in England. They're suing Surrey County Council, and they're suing six clinical commissioning groups, which are the local organisational units of the NHS. So I would say that Virgin needs to be very, very confident that they have an extremely strong case because everyone in the NHS kind of is aware that this is happening. It's quite, quite big in the news. And you would almost certainly think that that's going to colour how other people who might be you know, contracting out a service doing yeah. a tender are going to think about Virgin in the future. Now, I've said I wasn't going to say it, but that sounds a bit cunty to me. Um, it's a very, very interesting approach to your customers, isn't it? Is that Virgin as in, like, Richard Branson? That is Richard yeah. Branson, ah, Virgin, fuck. yeah. His daughter, his daughter <laughs> Holly Branson, is the head of the health bit of his business. They've got, you know, they've got quite a few contracts with the I want to trust him. How has this been allowed to happen? That private organisations... That they can actually sue the NHS for and the The NHS process. can sue the NHS C- can in, it? In, in rare circumstances, what, yeah. Miliband um, v Miliband. Yeah, um, sort of along, <laughs> yeah. Al- along those lines. <laughs> it's generally not very edifying, and it's generally not very worthwhile. So a lot of the NHS services that have gone out to tenders for the private sector, yeah. sort of people with higher need mental health services, so kind of secure organisations for people with mental health problems. That's almost entirely privately provided. There's quite little of that is provided by the NHS. And children's services are are kind of repeatedly uh, contracted out. And from what I understand of the data, there isn't meant to be, you know, significantly worse performance by private sector providers in either mental health care or children's services. Because, of course, these contracts are well, if they're done properly, then they should be let with their performance criteria. You have to see your patients within a certain amount of time, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So these do get reviewed. And, of course, the other thing is, the, as Virgin have done, they can also lose contracts. So that's the contracting out thing working as it should. But, that's how, yeah, that's how business works. Yes. You, you offer a contract and it may get turned down. Yep. So what, why does Richard Branson think he's entitled to these NHS contracts? That's a good question, and I don't profess to have any... Un- deep insight into Richard Branson's Richard psyche. Branson. Um, he wears linen trousers everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, he does what he wants. He, li- he, li- he likes to lift up exactly. sort of air hostesses. I don't like him because he's sort of an interesting doesn't even have Wi-Fi management on his tactic. See, you're probably too young, yeah. Darren, to remember when people liked Richard Branson back in, was it the 70s, when it was just a record label. It was yes. like, oh, he's so oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, Signed the, the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Signed the Sex Pistols. Look at him so now. What a prick. That's his air balloon. So from what you're saying, because obviously one of the big things that we get told by the news is that the NHS is being privatised. Yep. So is that the case? No. Absolute nonsense. Sorry, this is a real bugbear of mine. The NHS has certainly been denationalised to quite a large degree by the 2012 Health and Social Care Act. Would well, you remember Andrew Lansley? Didn't he no. have a go at you? Big grey He did have a go at me. He, he accused me on Twitter of childish abuse. Which, which I had to <laughs> said on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that went straight into my Twitter bio. Yeah, no, we had a very strange uh, exchange of views. Um, 
No, there's an absolute empirical and clear meaning to privatisation. Yet you take something that was owned totally by the public sector, you offer it to the stock exchange, Yeah, you can actually buy shares in it. That's the point, and those shares will be publicly traded forever. So, for example, we empirically sold off British gas. We absolutely sold off British airways. Those are now privatised, and you can go out and buy shares in them. Mm -hmm. You cannot go out and buy shares in the NHS. This is not possible, and therefore... While there are very real things which are badly wrong in political approaches to the NHS at the moment, in my opinion, to call it privatisation is just foolish. It's a load of other things. It is contracting out. It is denationalisation. And it's certainly funding it significantly less than the growth in the population, both the number of the population and the width of the population. And the need that we have because people are living a lot longer and we use most healthcare in the first two years and last six months of our lives... Those are all the real problems, and they're the problems it would be really, really great to talk about. But to talk about fantasy privatisation, I genuinely wish people would shut up about it because it isn't true. Thank you very much. So, if one were to read The Canary, for example... We're being t- we are often how, told how much healthcare would you need afterwards? <laughs> I never thought I was, you know, but there's this idea that the NHS is being purposefully strangled of cash by the Conservative government. Is that true or not? The NHS budget is going to r- carry on increasing in real terms every year, except next financial year. Next financial year, there is going to be a small but significant real terms drop in what the NHS spends on healthcare per capita. And I'm talking about the NHS in England because obviously I'm sure you will know that the NHS in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland haven't gone as much down this sort of market route and are basically run by the devolved governments of all of those organisations. So the Conservative government are not in fact lying that they have increased the NHS budget slightly. The problem happens because just the demand drivers and new technology, so new drugs against cancer, new forms of treatment for all sorts of things, and just the fact that the population is ageing and living longer and so has more long-term conditions, those are things that are really expensive to treat and you never get cured of those things, tends to be, the result of that tends to be that in developed countries, the annual cost of providing healthcare rises by somewhere around 2 to 3% every year. Mm-hmm. And the NHS has not been getting that increase. So the NHS was running well behind what was being spent in comparable countries in Europe for you know a lot of the 1980s and 1990s. There was then a very, very large period of catch-up spending, which was from really 2000 to 2010. I wonder who was responsible for that. Where the... Um, <laughs> where the NHS was getting kind of 6% real terms growth yeah. year on year. So a lot of that was making up for underfunding in the previous 20 years. But you've got to allow for things like inflation, you've got to allow for very specific wage increases that are in the NHS contracts. But the NHS is getting more money very slightly apart from next year, but it is almost certainly less than is required to keep things to a good level. So don't get ill next year. Basically, really don't get sick next year. <laughs> Look after your health very well. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. 
LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Carrie, do you have a question? My question is, what is the difference between care at the weekend and care on weekdays because there's this whole thing about mm. hospitals are shut at weekends boo yeah. which clearly they're not that was not really one of the high points in british public discourse of recent times jeremy hunt has this big thing and he, he appears you know he appears to be quite sincere that he would like the nhs to be safer and the nhs certainly could be safer one of his solutions to making it safer is to stretch what was, you know, kind of five-day staffing over seven days. So the same number of staff who were kind of purporting to offer a 24-7-hour service Monday to Friday. Now, this is not true, obviously, for things like A&E, maternity, which always have to happen over a weekend. But Jeremy Hunt's ambition is for everything in the NHS to be available 24-7, which you would normally think, oh, okay, well, that's an extra two-sevenths more doctors, nurses, budget that we will need. Apparently not. So statistical expert Jeremy Hunt, who's been arguing with Stephen Hawking, and perhaps not a mean slouch when it comes to analysing data and interpreting statistics, there was one piece of academic research which said there may be an impact with the fact that there is some less stuff available in hospitals at weekends. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of other academic research which says actually no this is down to a bunch of factors this is down to how you measure mortality this is down to patients admitted at the weekend being generally sicker patients and so you know you haven't really put all of these things into appropriate context so while i I think most people would say it would be absolutely delightful to to see every nhs service available absolutely all the time forever on the basis of the resources that are available, I think it's far from clear to most people that what's being planned is deliverable. Um, have you got a question, Darren? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, obese people or smokers, right? Those two, I keep hearing about, take so much money out of the NHS. Which one do you hate the most? We'll start with that. <laughs> smokers don't really cost that much. There's, there's, there's not so that, obese people there, there's, 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 there's not that much you can do no the, the five year survival rates for lung cancer are still really shit mm. but the thing about smokers is we're kind of pricing them out and we're kind of just socialing them out with the ban of you know smoke you wake, wake and go now and smoke indoors it's kind of like nowhere isn't it so you're saying if we brought down the price of cigarettes more people would smoke 
more more revenue more re- more revenue for the treasury yeah okay so you know that's always good but no i'm clearly not that would be irresponsible to advocate those sorts of measures and also the place would stink a lot more yeah do you remember you remember going to gigs yeah. when yeah. People, everyone really, smoked really horrible. And it was i've never smoked foul. So. um yeah but you uh, remember when the pub smoking ban came in and you realized that pubs smell of something worse anyway yeah, yeah 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 that was not good and for obese people um like they want to give obese people cooking lessons that's the new thing and it's like really that's not necessarily as bad an idea as it sounds really yeah i think so because the drivers of obesity one of them is that cheap energy dense foods are amazingly easy to down to iceland get it slam it in an oven other brands are available other brands are available (laughs) but do you remember jamie oliver did some work with channel four a few years ago and it was kind of the pass it on teaching people to cook and pass it on and what he found was that in some poor communities there was just a very low level of people who knew how you chop an onion how you do the absolute utter basics of cooking which i guess many people in this room would not struggle with but i mean i don't necessarily think that's a bad idea Equally, there's almost certainly a correlation between poor mental health and eating badly, eating in ways that aren't healthy and you know, not exercising and doing it of any kind. So, I mean, it's a great question, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to duck it out of picking. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you not think, because the NHS is free at the point of access and need, that means that people don't feel they need to take personal responsibility. So perhaps if there was a charge to see your GP, people might take better care of themselves is there an argument for that there is a charge to see a gp it's called tax the way we run the system at the moment we use gps to basically know when someone's trivially sick and when someone's seriously ill and needs to see a specialist or needs a diagnostic test etc etc and all of the evidence from health systems across the world is that when you've introduced a charge for the to see the gatekeeper then the poorest people don't pay that charge because they don't have that money available by and large and what that means is that if they, if they turn out to be properly sick, which some of them will, yeah. then their illness will progress to a point where it's more expensive and more difficult to treat and the outcome of care will probably be worse. And I think there may be not that great evidence that people are going to see their GP vexatiously. I mean, how many people in this room... Please put your hand up. If you've ever gone to see your GP just for a laugh when you really didn't need to. <laughs> Banter. <laughs> I, I, I just don't think it happens. I, I think there's, there's other completely crap policy arguments, like saying that people go and get unnecessary care for the NHS. What? Who goes and gets an unnecessary knee replacement from the NHS? How Ooh, about my charging? My brother once fancied a day off school, so pretended to have appendicitis. Right. My mum called his bluff. And he had his appendix out. <laughs> no. <laughs> and years later, I was drunk and chatting to her and saying, you know, oh, you know, he, he never had appendicitis. And she just went, yeah. Your mum is fierce. Isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> what a woman. Yeah. I was going to say, so that's a good argument for the GP. But you must be in favour of charging drunk idiots in A&E who've broken their fingers. See, I'm on board with that. I think we should charge, like, anyone under 18... Alcohol poisoning, charge the parents, right? Because obviously they're not going to have the money. And then anybody over the age of like 40, they, they, don't, they don't get charged. <laughs> well, thanks for that one. Honestly, um, I think that they know how to drink. And I think everybody in between 18 and like 40, that's like your pisshead bit. Also, I think that people who have like injuries 
like broken legs or whatever from like skateboarding. Yep. If you're over the age of 18, fuck off, mate. You're paying 300 <laughs> quid, right? Because you should not be skateboarding at that age. So you got to learn 300 quid charge right there. So, so that's just, that's an image charge, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely. Like skate, yeah. It's like keeping young things for the young. Exactly. Yeah. You've got culture. hair on your balls. You pay 300 <laughs> quid, mate. It, you you realise you realize our culture will fall apart if you, <laughs> if you prevent... <laughs> Older people from acting young. So I'm not um, Anybody falls off a Segway, regardless. Of exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Knob charge. Knob yes. charge. Yes. <laughs> Again, one of the things that we read about all the time is that there's real pressure on A and E because people either go to A and E because they don't need to because they should be seeing someone else but they can't access them, yep. or um, they go to A and E because they've got drunk and got an injury. Yeah. And should there be some sort of system there for claiming back money? Or uh, putting people off. Yeah, just do it I like mean, Argos. So yeah. Just go in, pay first, wait your ticket. Yeah, I mean, you can now get those kits to do your own fillings. Exactly. Why not patch up your own broken heels? You get home STD kits and stuff. It's very difficult to collect that money because we don't have all those systems in place. We don't have cashiers with swipe cards and etc. Cetera, et cetera. Do you, know, you remember, it comes up about every four years from whoever's the Home Secretary. Yeah. We're going to get the police to march drunks to cash points to pay fines. And it, yeah. it's sort of, it's part of that method of thinking that firstly it will deter it happening in future. There's actually some reasonably good evidence that where NHS hospitals put alcohol liaison advisors into A&E and actually make sure that when people leave having sobered up a bit mm-hmm. they actually follow it up and go look actually your drinking is now getting you into this sort of trouble and that to me would be a health system working really effectively that it would do that sort of thing but I think as soon as you're kind of going there will be financial penalties for doing this it's kind of like most of that stuff it's obviously irritating and tiresome if you're at A&E on a Friday or Saturday night and you are, or are with someone who's genuinely ill and there's a, a, a crowd of the pissed and the, you know, the socially inadequate who are there and you perceive that to be waste. We don't know enough about their lives and how probably shit their lives are to be getting that shit-faced that you end up in A&E. That's, that's quite a shit life. No one goes out and says, oh, I'm really looking forward to being hit by a car later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be in A&E tonight. It's also a real night out. There's also the question of where then do you draw the line? Because presumably, lots of things that are wrong with people in the course of their lifetimes... Could be fault. Yeah. So this is why the, the NHS is not being parceled up for private insurance or any of that canaries cobblers. Because... What you notice about private insurance of any kind, whether it's health insurance or whether it's your, your home and contents insurance or your travel insurance, is as soon as you try and claim on it, the buggers are just like, no, exclusion, can't claim on this, can't claim on that. Did you have your house under armed guard? So we, we know that to be roughly how the insurance industry works. So introducing those sorts of insurance-type thoughts into what is currently a single-payer system is a, a dreadful idea in my opinion. So if somebody wants to propose doing that stuff, it's as part of saying, right, the NHS doesn't work and therefore we should move to a private insurance system. And there are some people who believe that, but there aren't very many people who believe that. And actually, if you look at public, repeated public social attitude surveys, opinion polls, what most people say actually is that the NHS is one of the things that consistently makes them most proud to be British. I mean, the NHS appeared in the 2012 Olympic Games opening ceremony. No <laughs> other country on the planet would do that. So 
either we're slightly off our bearings about the NHS, or what I think is actually happening is the NHS is telling us a story, particularly at a time when we are a very divided country, the NHS is telling us a story about being in a way together and all part of one thing, and I think that's quite powerful. Are you proud of the NHS audience? Yeah. yeah! Oh, you were right. I didn't believe you for, for a second. I was question. Thinking, oh, question. A question. Uh, Brexit. Um, the Big whole question. Brexit thing, right? This alleged 350 million is a complete fucking lie. <laughs> um, so, yeah, okay. Is a total and complete hog-whimpering fucking lie. But and Boris Johnson said so. Yes, Boris Johnson did say He said it twice, so, and, yeah. it twice yeah. and it was on a bus. And Boris Johnson has form for lying. And people who believe what Boris Johnson says as a matter of form should probably go and seek some form of psychological help. Um, <laughs> it's a complete and utter load of shit. Is Brexit likely to be damaging for the NHS, as they say? Oh, God, yes. Because, firstly... It now looks very much that we are cantering towards uh, some form of probably very hard Brexit, so we will possibly be leaving the EU and going straight onto World Trade Organization tariffs. That just will hit trade. That will cause a slowdown to tax revenues. That is going to cause problems for the entire public sector. There's another one which we haven't really thought of at all, and it's an area we don't think of very much, which is social care. And social care has been very extensively cut back. You probably know that the central government grants to local authorities have been cut by over one-third since 2010, and they're set to be cut yet further. So the local government has been forced into making a number of very difficult decisions, and one of those decisions is that the criteria for being able to get social care, so that's helped with dressing, with washing, with you know, feeding, living, that's much, much higher than it used to be. The knock-on effect of that is that vulnerable people are not coping in their own homes and therefore they're being admitted to hospital more often. That's increasing pressure on A&E. Also making it extremely difficult to discharge medically fit older people who've gone into hospital for a medical reason. They're, they're medically well, but they're just not well enough to cope independently. They, so there aren't the social care packages there. There isn't the money there to hire the social care packages even if the staff were there. Very significant element of the workforce of social care is EU nationals. Their current you know, status in this country, completely unknown. Haven't got a clue. So the fact that the global economy has told us what it thinks is likely to happen with Brexit, with the value of the pound, there's also a very real issue there. So somebody who's come from the EU perfectly legally come here to work working in social care their wages are worth you know around a fifth or more less in their home country than used to be the case so brexit's going to be a colossal screw up at just about every level isn't it yeah well we've got the control back (laughs) yeah Ah. woo take that yeah I'll open it up to the audience now. Has anybody got a question for Andy? Doesn't matter how stupid it is or how sensible. Yep. Your opinion on doctors using end-to-end encryption, um, like applications like WhatsApp, which store their data on servers in the US? It's already happening. So some of the response immediately after the Westminster Bridge terrorist attack was being coordinated by a bunch of doctors based at St. Thomas's using an existing WhatsApp group. (sighs) 
So is there a problem having the data stored in the US? It depends if it's secure, maybe. I can't imagine that it's likely to be a priority anytime soon for the NHS to securely store encrypted you know, social media messaging data in the UK. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm deeply ignorant about technical matters. Therefore, I would not be able to give you an informed opinion as to whether that's cost-effective, something that you could do for half a million quid, two million quid. Sorry, a bit of a partial answer. You can't do it. You can't do it. I work with NHS. Do you work for the NHS? <laughs> do you know the answer to that question? When he asked that question, I just saw the crowd go, what the hell? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what is he, a spy? That's not stupid so enough. If you just wait for the microphone to come. Andy. John. Uh, what's an STP? It's a, it's a sticky toffee pudding, isn't it? <laughs> um, Thank you. No, sorry. Um, so this is, this is part of the curse of professional language. So all professions have their job. You know, I suspect comedians have their jargon, and the NHS certainly loves its jargon. And the NHS is the home of the TLA, the three-letter acronym. And in fact, NHS is a three-letter acronym. And so, yeah, STPs are designed to save the CCGs from falling into the same face as PCTs, and, you know, we, the neglected SHAs, uh, as, uh, and the SROs from... It's just a means of talking absolute bollocks and, and effectively <laughs> deterring the well-meaning layperson from understanding what the hell's going on in the NHS. The specific answer to your question is obviously sustainability and transformation plans and these are these 44 plans for the regions of England and it's like, it's basically the reintroduction of planning. Um, Andrew Lansley's 2012 Health and Social Care Act basically abolished planning because Andrew Lansley believed that competitive markets were going to come up with all the answers and GPs were going to run a market system in the NHS. That he out sounds like an idiot. <laughs> He's in the House of Lords now, I'll have you know. He's Lord Lansley, so uh, you can do what he did to so politics and policy and get... Exactly. And get kicked upstairs. And he's also on the boards of a couple of pharmaceutical companies. I mean, so I, bet, I bet I could fuck up the NHS. I bet I, bet I could. So, so, so what, then I could go to the Lord. That would be amazing. What we should do is we should have a competitive tendering market. Next time, when, when Jeremy Hunt gets the sack, yeah. then he's I think get we the should sack, contract he's out. We should contract out being the next Secretary of State for Health. So you could put in a bid. I'll do that. Yeah? Darryl, do you, do you fancy, do you fancy undercutting bid. her yeah. bid and maybe yeah. promising some more... I'd Health secretaryness, like, dental practices in garages. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. And I'd see when I didn't get the job. So, so there we go. Yeah, there we go. I think we've cracked that one. Sorted. Um, has anybody else got a question? I've got a question. Yeah. Um, what What's the single thing that could be done that would improve the NHS? Can it be a difficult single thing? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All yeah. Right. I mean, I was assuming it would be. It'd be great if you just went privatize it. <laughs> 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 It wouldn't, it wouldn't. Kill them all. It, it wouldn't. Um, so we've got some evidence of private sector companies coming in and trying to run big bits of the NHS with a hospital called Hinchinbrook. The existence of that hospital is quite interesting because it sort of dates back to the John Major government. You may remember that was in his constituency. And the argument was, we need a new hospital here because blah, blah, blah. And, oh, it's the prime minister's constituency. So you can have a new hospital. No problem. Now... That's the hospital's then gone on to have all sorts of problems because, in fact, it's between two other big hospitals which are more naturally where people want to work. So it's always had problems with recruitment, etc., etc. And what the NHS did was actually contract out the management to a private company called Circle Healthcare, and they contracted it out for five years. And Circle Healthcare got 
very good results in the friends and family test, which is that sort of did you did you like did you like being in A and E today? Was, was it fun? Yeah. And and they got good results in the first year. That's not actually particularly difficult. You can game the friends and family test pretty easily. But thereafter, they couldn't actually do it. They couldn't stay within the budget. They couldn't hit the national waiting time standards. And they had to hand the contract back two years before the contract ended, having lost £5 million. So you can actually say that Circle Healthcare subsidised the NHS to the tune of £5 million. So round of applause perhaps for Circle Healthcare (laughs) giving the NHS £5 million. No, what the NHS, I think, would both benefit from is sort of two things. One of which is to pay a lot more attention to, like, the variability in how good the outcomes of care are. It's kind of like, you can go, well, you could give the extra 10 billion, 20 billion to the NHS, but actually the thing we should care about is what does any extra resource, or what does the resource we've got now buy in terms of health, delivery, and outcomes for all of us? Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that really matters, and it is very, very variable between one hospital and another. There's always that element of variability. You know, there are variably funny comedians, there are variably... Uh, knowledgeable people who pretend they know what they're talking about on the NHS. But that needs to be much more systematic. It needs to be a much bigger thing. The other big, big thing for me is that the NHS has got very serious cultural problems. There's big problems in the NHS with bullying. There's a very significant problem that happens to people who do what's called whistleblowing. So they sort of declare the fact that stuff is actually happening in hospitals, which is appallingly unsafe. And it's more or less a way in which your career as a clinician in the NHS, and actually sometimes even for managers, it ends your career if you do that. I know only one person who has successfully blown the whistle in the NHS twice and kept his career, and it's incredibly difficult. And unfortunately, there are many things which are great about a single-payer system where we all pay for it through our taxes. There, There are a lot of advantages to that system. One of the disadvantages to that system, and so it's a, it's a big one, and I don't know how you solve it, is that there's a massive tendency to send the right answer to the Department of Health in Whitehall or the right answer to NHS England. Yeah. And that's not healthy. And that feeds into a very unhealthy culture that is a huge problem for the NHS, a huge and very under-discussed problem. I think that happens a lot in, in public sectors. I mean, it's nowhere near the life or death thing, but the same thing happens within the BBC. It's like kind of, you know, there's, there's the uh, culture of bullying and yeah. there's the idea that you tell someone what they want to hear rather yep. than what the actual truth is. Yep. Uh, but it seems to be very particular to publicly funded cultures. There are basically only three things. A very cynical and rather drunk NHS chief executive once explained to me that there are only three things which really cause you to lose your job in the NHS as a chief executive. And it basically... Number one is you don't blow up the money. You don't, you don't bust your budget without getting approval beforehand. Number two, you don't kill your patients in such numbers that the local press and will start to notice. And number three is you never, ever do anything that will embarrass the minister. Oh. They're not great incentives, are no, they? No, they're really not. Well, on that happy note, um, <laughs> this was our pilot. Some of the questions weren't that stupid, they were good questions. I had more. I had way more stupid questions, but like it, it was. It answering. gets interesting, doesn't it, it? Yeah, it was so yeah. interesting. I didn't want to bring it. Like I was like because I got circumcised on the NHS when Did I was you? when I was nineteen. I wanted to ask like if there was a price. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you? There you go. Hang on a minute. We've got a little bit of extra time here. You you were circumcised. Was this through choice? Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was a teenager. I was nineteen. Yeah, but I mean, you did, it didn't fall in something. Oh no, no, no! It like it. <laughs> it I'm it, sorry, <laughs> you didn't fall. What would he have fallen into? Love. Yeah. Uh, and I fell into a gutter and got it caught. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I basically what happened? I'll give you the quick skinny. I lost my virginity when I was 18, right? Yeah. And then it hurt a lot. And I was like, oh, what's wrong with my dick? This is like normal, right? And then I went to the doctors and the doc- and they, they had a look and they were like, oh, let me have a look at your dick. They never said it like that. It was technical terms, whatever, right? And I went, yeah, and I had so much skin, it was insane. But I never realized I had a problem. I was just like, oh, I'm just blessed in that way. And, I, <laughs> and they were like, no, 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 this is wrong. So then I had to go and have it done. But it took like eight months mm. to get... <laughs> that was the waiting list. Um, you, don't want them, you don't want them rushing it, though, in all fairness, do you? Well, I, I always wondered, like, if it was private, I, I'd get it done sooner. You would, but you'd also then pay about three grand. Is that how much that it is? That's what I wanted to know. Free. Is it dependent on size? Like, <laughs> <laughs> is it like a builder who walks in and goes, oh, this is going to cost a bit, mate? <laughs> You've ne- had a right ne- cowboy never- here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Never accept. Never, ex- never accept an estimate. <laughs> No looks, way. looks like a cat's chewed it after it's finished, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I tell you what, I tell you what. How I'll do you know what a dick that a cat's chewed <laughs> looks like? I have friends in low places. Oh, okay. I tell you what, I never forget the morphine they gave me afterwards. That was I'm. I still kind of try and it's find lovely, that high, isn't right? It? And they put my cock in a bandage. Yeah. And it's so sweet and adorable in a little bandage. <laughs> it's the cutest thing you've ever seen. Did like, you try and get people to sign it? <laughs> Like a cast. <laughs> I just remember when it, when it fell off, it fell off in like a little like sort of helmet shell on the floor, and I was like, oh, I'm a man now. <laughs> like, it's amazing. Three grand. That's insane. Get a car. Andy, did you say that you also got circumcised at 19? Is that where you shook his yeah. hand? Yeah. Is this a thing that happened? Yeah. Is it? Is it? <laughs> Have you, were you circumcised at 19 on the NHS? <laughs> I yeah, because if you don't like talk to like your parents about, it, you're not gonna talk to your parents about it, really. Yeah. And then not the first really. first time you get like checked out, they notice it. That's usually how it happens. Because you're not gonna go, oh, dad, oh, what's your dick like, dad? <laughs> like, <laughs> have a look at this. Is it exactly, normal? Yeah. yeah. Perhaps that is a thing that maybe the NHS can introduce pamphlets with all the different dicks. Going, does your <laughs> does your three year old's dick look like this? Maybe he wants a circumcision. <sighs> Yeah, unless you're religious, you're not really going to care, are yeah. you, about your baby? Like, oh, he's got one. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do. I worked on a sexual health helpline for a while, and people would try and text you pictures oh, so yeah. you could, like, diagnose. Yeah. <gasps> yeah See, why, why were they erect? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Your penis looks fine, but your breathing sounds... <laughs> <laughs> That's asthma, isn't it? Yeah. Before we go, um, is there anything that anybody would like to plug? I will come to you all individually. Uh, Carrie, have you got anything you'd like to plug or tell us you've had cut off? <laughs> I'd, lo- oh, I'd love to be able to tell you I've got circumcised on the NHS, but I had to pay three grand. <laughs> I've got absolutely nothing to plug. Darren, is there anything you would like to plug for our podcast? Um, yeah, I'm just on Twitter. At, <laughs> at Darren Harriet. That's it, yeah. Andy, <laughs> is there anything you would like to plug before we go? I'm on Twitter at HBI Andy Cowper. Just come say hello. It's the new way of doing it. Um, thank you so much. This has been Any Stupid Questions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Any Stupid Questions with guests Andy Cowper, Darren Harriet, and Carrie Quinlan and our audience at the London Podcast Festival at King's Place in London. It was hosted by me, Danielle Ward, and produced by Ed Moresh for the internet. 
If you enjoyed it, we are recording more episodes on the 15th and 22nd of October at the Phoenix in Cavendish Square, London. Tickets are available from tickettext.co.uk or, you know, just Google it like a normal person would. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.